0: Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org this is judaism unbound episode 139 the future of god welcome back everyone i'm dan liebenson
1: and i'm lex rofberg
0: and we are here for our wrap-up conversation on the topic of god but before we do we want to suggest as we always do in these wrap-up episodes that there are a few ways that you can help us if you're really enjoying judaism unbound the most important from the perspective of keeping all this going is it would be so great if you would be able to make a financial donation to help keep us going. We often suggest at a minimum a dollar per episode that you listen to. So if you're a weekly listener, you might consider a contribution of something like $50. If you're an occasional listener, maybe $18. And if you really, really love us, you know, as many thousands or millions as you have to spare. can really, really help make this a a going concern. So thank you so much for being willing to donate. There are all kinds of ways that you can do that. But the easiest way is to go to the hub on our website of www.judaismunbound.com slash donate. And there you'll find all kinds of ways that you can give a recurring monthly donation or a one-time donation or all kinds of of other options. Another way that you can help is to go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and hopefully also a positive review. That helps listeners find the podcast and it helps us get these ideas to more and more people. The last thing that I want to ask for your help on is that we are doing a survey of our listeners right now in an attempt to understand what's resonating with you, what you want more of, what you want less of. We're trying to think about ways that we can expand what we're doing beyond the podcast. And so if you go to www.judaismunbound.com survey, and we also put the link to that in the notes on the episode. So if you look down in your podcast app, you should be able to see that link right now. And you can click on that and fill out this very brief survey, and it'll really help us a lot to understand our listeners. So thank you so much in advance for doing that. And now let's jump into our conversation about God. It's really kind of interesting, Lex, I think that we've sort of uh, left this for two and a half years or more after we started the podcast. And a lot of people think God is the the first thing that we should be talking about. But as uh, Daniil Hartman told us, we can put God second, and in our case, uh, 140th or so. So... I think that what I wanted to start with a little bit is talking about why, although we may have left the subject of God, actually, as I look at it to number 131, nevertheless, it's important to talk about God, even for those who don't believe in God or who are very much in question about their belief in God. And what I would say is that I think that there's actually a translation project involved here. It's as if a lot of Judaism was in a different language, which it also was, right? Whether that language is Hebrew or Yiddish, you know, a lot of Jews don't speak those languages, but nevertheless, very few people, I think, would object to the idea that it's important to translate the Jewish ideas that were initially written in those languages into the languages that we do speak, whether that was Aramaic 2,000 years ago or English today. That's pretty unobjectionable. And what I want to put out there as a starting position is that God is also a language in which much of Judaism was written. Many of our ethical principles were put into the language of, because God commanded it, or even more directly in the Torah, these things that end with, I am the Lord. And I think that if we just say, hey, we don't believe in God anymore, or we don't believe in that personal God anymore, so let's just lop off that entire area that was developed and that was stated in God language, to me, that is kind of doing violence and and doing sort of major surgery uh, in a place where maybe only a little bit of minor surgery is called for. So, so what I want to start with advocating, no matter what your belief system is, but obviously this is more directed at those whose belief in God is less, that it's important to engage in the process of translating from God language into some other language so as to retain the enormous amount of Jewish cultural material that was put in God language.
1: My biggest reflection or one of my biggest reflections from all these episodes is that A, I realized in myself that I hadn't done as much thinking about God as I had about all sorts of other Jewish topics that we've spoken about. Um, It was harder for me to think of questions on the fly. It was like more of a challenge, just like in interviews, to, to do a decent job. And so I've been wrestling in all sorts of directions with, A, whether I should affirm myself and say, you know what, that's great and normal and okay. And lots of other people are in the same place where God is not taking up that much bandwidth. But also for many people, either because they actively do not believe in God, and that plays an important role in their life, or because they actively do believe in God. Um, All of those things are real too. And like, maybe I should challenge myself to find ways in which that could really push me and poke me in the directions I want religion to push me and poke me. So that's number one. The other piece I really want to highlight from our guests is that there were a wide variety of orientations to a very particular question, which is, what does God belief do to people who believe in God? So I mentioned that question for a few reasons. One, it came up with Daniil Hartman most directly, because he wrote a book that was based on that question, basically. He wasn't as interested in exactly what we think God is, what attributes God has, all of that. Um, he did, he is interested in that to some extent, but he's mostly interested in, given that people do believe in God, what do they then do in the world? And so we had a whole conversation about that. But then with some of our other guests, and um, I think that there were different orientations, and there was some resistance even to the question of, what does belief in God do to people from Shai Held? Because, For him, it's not just about what it does for each of us as individuals or to us as individuals. It's about sort of how the universe is. And it's this, uh, I don't want to put too many words in his mouth, but I got the sense that there, there was an instrumentalization of God belief that he wasn't as excited about. There was making God belief into sort of a tool for other things. And I wanted to name that because for me, I do think that God belief is a tool. I think that belief in God in and of itself is not an end for me. I don't think that God for me is something to worship just because it's something to worship. And I'm using it for God. We talked about pronouns, you know, do we say he, do we use it, do we use she, do we use they? um, I do, despite having wrestled with all of this and pushed myself, think the following key pieces after all of our conversations. One I still think God is taking up too much space in Jewish life, and we should be focusing on reducing the bandwidth that God takes up. Although I think I believe this less certainly than I did before. And second, that the most important question to ask is, given that people do have any kind of God belief, what will it do to them or what will it do to our communities and our world?
0: Well, it's interesting for me to hear you say that you still think or may think right, or may not think anymore that God is taking up too much space in Jewish life. Because in a way, what I feel I'm coming away from some of these conversations with is the idea that we're actually not talking about God enough in Jewish life. So I'm I'm actually kind of interested in which part of Jewish life you're talking about <laughs> when you're saying that God is taking up too much space. Right. Because I feel like from the perspective of Jewish life that I'm around most of the time, God occupies almost no space.
1: I'll be clear. I mean that God is taking up implicit space. We're not always naming it, but God is centered in ways that we don't always even realize and that have become so rote that we don't really even talk about them. So I'm sort of agreeing with you. I don't think we always talk about God. I still think God takes up a great deal of bandwidth.
0: Like what? I mean, can you give some sense of what you're talking about?
1: Well, I mean, all the pieces we've talked about and that you've talked about with prayer, I think that when most people think of default Jewish experience, they think a prayer service. Um, you and I might push for an alternative way of understanding what like a default Jewish experience is, but I think in many people's minds, once again, not because they've said it or talked about it, but because it's just sort of implicitly there, worship service, prayer service— in some sort of sanctuary is seen as a default. And in the vast majority of those spaces, God is all over the page. Sometimes God is in Hebrew and maybe people aren't even thinking about Adonai. Maybe it's just sort of a word, but God is invoked and named over and over and over again. And you're right to call out that many people aren't really actually thinking about that. So in a sense, it's not taking up that much bandwidth, but like, what does that mean if such a prominent piece of every page of every prayer book is something that either is not quite resonating with people or that people are kind of avoiding subconsciously. Like that to me is a warning sign that we should be filling those pages of those prayer books with other things more and with God less.
0: When I think about a prayer service, I don't go because I think about a prayer service as being largely built around the concept of God. It's actually very hard for me to imagine what else might be going on at a prayer service, especially if it takes three hours, you know, I mean, three and a half hours. If it took 30 minutes, I mean, maybe you could talk about how there's also community stuff going on, or maybe the stuff that happens after the prayer service really is the most important part, which a lot of folks will say, but nevertheless, you had to sit through a three and a half our service in order to get there. So it feels to me like you have to look at what's actually going on at that service. And what seems to be going on is praying to God as a result A very small number of people goes to the prayer service. I imagine that at least a subset of those people are into the idea of God and think about God a lot. I imagine there's also a subset of people who go that, for whatever reason, aren't that into God, but nevertheless for themselves have reconciled that they find some meaning there, that they're looking for something that they're getting there. But the vast majority of the rest of us don't go because we imagine that that prayer service has to do almost solely or largely with God, And we're not interested in that. I think that what I'm struggling with is that one very logical and I think also very pervasive reaction to that is simply not to do those things, right? I I guess I study a lot of the texts and I find the texts meaningful to study even around and, and with other interpretations of the God language. But I personally can't find much value in going to prayer services when I don't believe that there's a God out there who's listening to them. The question I think that I want us to struggle with is Is there an alternative to just chopping that stuff off and ignoring them completely, which is what the vast majority of Jews in America? do, including me, much of the time? And is there a way to grapple with that? I'm not advocating that people should start going to religious services and and in their mind somehow think about something else so that they can... I, I don't suggest that. What I'm suggesting is, though, that we also don't sort of just chop them off and imagine that that is a completely irrelevant thing. I would like to sort of study the religious services, right, to study the worship services and to try to figure out, are there ways that we can continue to get what's good about these without having to do what we don't like in them. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm a big fan of LabShul, because I think that in their effort to have God optional services, as opposed to atheistic services or putting God first services or whatever you want to call them, right, they're trying to figure out a way to have some kind of experience that actually kind of works on both levels.
1: So, I'm really fascinated by all this because i I don't think I totally recognized some of our differences on this until this conversation and we've we've spoken about prayer a lot of times but i but i a i want to name a few things because what for me growing so I was a member of a synagogue the only service close to three and a half hours that I can ever think of happening in my congregation the entire year would have been Yom Kippur um that was the only one. The the Saturday morning service w- happened at my synagogue. It was like nine people in the in the side library. Um and it was max 50 minutes. Um I I know cuz I I started going I don't even know why. I started going late in high school um once I got my driver's license. The Friday night service was probably an hour, hour 15 minutes. Um and that was seen as the main service. And this is true at many reform congregations. Um so for me and those like it was very clear to me that both based on the content of the service and the the nature of interaction with people that there were tons that the, there were tons of people there who were not there to engage with God at all like that was just not the purpose. and and it really might be we think of reform and conservative services often as quite similar to each other. And we sort of conflate them sometimes on the show. I think it might be worth saying that this might be different in, uh in different denominational settings and geographic settings, et cetera. But like God didn't even come up in my sermons growing up. Like, I remember most of our, and uh, my rabbi in Milwaukee, the vast majority of Friday in services, if it was around Thanksgiving time, he'd talk about something Thanksgiving related and gratitude and whatever. If it was, you know, it was often based on the time of year or some news event happening or whatever, it, it really was not about God is calling us to do X, Y, or Z thing. Maybe that happened occasionally. And yet, to get to my point from before, God was, you know, Every other sentence of the liturgy that we said, and when we read translations, which we would, um, it would often include God language, commander language, etc. Um, so that's one piece. I also to want to clarify my point a little further because I really think that this implicit, explicit piece is important because I'm thinking of the holiday of Purim. And so we read the book of Esther and Purim, and the whole thing everybody talks about is like, oh, God isn't mentioned in this book. I swear, every, every rabbi I've ever met has their sermon about, oh my gosh, God's not in the book of Esther. How interesting is that? There's this book of the Bible that doesn't have God, but well, what can we learn from that? Well, actually, God is more present in this book, and God is hidden, and the word Esther in Hebrew implies hiddenness, and God's hidden. And that, to me, is a perfect example of like, this book literally does not have God, and somehow we take that as a sign that actually it's about God. It's like when you back out for a second, it shows I'm gonna because Daniel Hartman used disease language, I'm going to use the word complex. It's a complex. like we have this thing where we have to re-engineer everything into God. And that's a part of me that I really do empathize and understand why folks in the secular humanistic world feel as strongly as they do and why, because, it isn't that God is always named, but they're right to say that still God is a focal point in in a lot of communities across the denominational spectrum.
0: So let me give you one example of, of the way that I've been thinking about this. And I, I think I mentioned it in some of the previous conversations, but when I think about the reality of human life in the 21st century, and certainly as we kind of look forward to the 22nd century, I don't, you know, we can only imagine that so many of the powers that we used to imagine were the powers of God, the powers of creation and the powers of destruction, right? We know, for those of us who are not climate change deniers, that we now have the power as a human race to destroy the world. And we also know when we look at science, DNA, and all that stuff, that we are getting closer and closer to the powers to create life. When we read some of these books about silicon-based life, right, computers, gaining consciousness, et cetera, et cetera, it seems clear that we are moving quickly and inexorably in the direction of having the powers to create life of various forms and everything in between. That doesn't mean that we have all of the powers that we used to imagine that God had, but it might mean that we have all of the powers, and it certainly means that we have, I would say, most of the powers. And if you would look around the world and see most of the things that are happening today in the realm of science, and you sort of brought somebody from 2,000 years ago forward to see this world, they would imagine that they're living in some godly realm where only miracles and God could have created these things. And we know that that's not the case. So basically what I'm saying is that in many ways, we have the powers that I think we used to imagine were the powers of God. and we also know from some of our ethical efforts in these times that, in many ways, our society is struggling to know how do we live with these powers? How do we have ethics in this world? Where is our guidance? And what I would want to suggest is that we have spent the last 2, 3, 4,000 years thinking about how we hope God will be towards us. And so I often think of this specifically with reference to a particular passage in the Talmud where somebody asks, does God pray? And ultimately the Talmud says, yes, God prays to God's self and says, may my qualities of mercy be greater than my qualities of anger or judgment. And right, the the idea is that we, we hope that a creature, that a being with those powers would see mercy as their primary characteristic. And the other piece that for me is really powerful in all this is the material that we have in Judaism about walking in God's ways. There's some incredible passages that, that, that Held talks about and that we look at in the Talmud where it says, you know, it looks at various actions that God takes in the Torah to bury Moses, for example, and then says, just as God buries the dead, you too should bury the dead, right? You, in other words, there are all these things that, that God does that we say, and this is giving us the roadmap of how we should be as human beings. And what I'm suggesting is that we expand that roadmap and we look at things that used to be imagined as things that only God could do because only God had those powers. And now to recognize that we also have those powers and therefore we should bind ourselves by that same aspiration. So to me, that's an example of how to mine this material that's in God language and to translate it in ways that make it just as powerful, if not more powerful for us today, even if we don't actually believe that there's a being out there called God, and or if there is, that it's a personal God.
1: My main critique of that is that ultimately, in almost every of the eras of the past, the main quality of God was that God is greater than we are. That That was the quality. And that actually is still how many people understand God. It is the thing that is above what we are as human beings. And no matter what we as human beings are able to do, no matter how much we can destroy the world, no matter how much we can create, the premise of many eras of Judaism and many eras of other religions is that God is the thing that is orders of magnitude better than us. I think we are God. I think you and I are God. But it's because I come from that neo-mystical, neo-Hasidic, whatever place, where for me, God isn't external. God is the sum, the sum total, or it's greater than the sum of the parts, but God is all things. Everything is God, to use the J. Michaelson book title. That is the closest thing to an articulation of what I think. And the question I brought up before comes up then, what do we do with that? And the answer for you and for me is the same answer. Given that we are God, which you think and which I think, just you might put God in quotes. I I would not put God in quotes. Um, given that we are God, what does that mean? Well, for me, it means that not only are you Dan Liebenson like an image of God. I do I do like that idea, but it's actually more than that. You're not an image of God. I care much more about my friends and my family than I do pictures of them. So. Saying that somebody is a picture of God, an image of God, that's what image of God means. We use it as like a one-syllable phrase, image of God. Um, What it means is it is a a picture of something that is greater than that picture. It is like a subform of that greater form. I actually don't think that about other human beings. I don't think that we are merely images of God in the sense that we are some small manifestation of a greater thing. Like we are God. So what that compels me to do is that, well, if I care about this thing called God, then that means I am obliged to care about all other human beings. And more than that, if I care about myself, so forget God for a second, then I I can't prioritize my own needs over the needs of my society, because my society is ultimately a part of me.
0: I'm still kind of mulling over like how I feel about some of the alternatives to a personal god that have been described by some of our guests there's a way in which i find them compelling and like i think i said when we were talking to art green i'm i'm kind of on board with that perhaps although i i then wonder what we do with some of our traditional practices like prayer you know what's the point of prayer if you don't believe that uh, a personal god is listening now i i think you could answer that question i i could imagine that you might say if we are all God, if right, that that it makes sense to remind ourselves of that every week or every day and to have some kind of experience where we remember that. I, I would then say, well, I don't think a lot of this language is working, so let's modify the language. But I could start to see even the value of some kind of prayer, or some kind of of gathering in which we kind of ritually remind ourselves of this. What I struggle with, though, is the reason I don't say I'm an atheist is because I'm kind of open to that view of God. I think what I'm saying is that there isn't a God, but to the extent that when we talked about God at a time when many of us believed that there was a God... We had a very clear image of what that God was about, and we ought to tap into that rather than just lopping it off and saying that all these thousands of years of God language are now irrelevant because we don't believe in God anymore. So so what I really want to say is that that's my primary um, approach here. And as a secondary approach, I'm open to the possibility of some kind of panentheism or some kind of notion that everything is God or, or some version of that. And that, that there's a maybe a, a more of a spiritual dimension to that. And I'm I'm open to that and I'm willing to explore that because I feel like I've heard from many people, including you, that I respect a lot, that there is real spiritual value to be gained from interacting with that possibility. So I'm not sure what I do as a sort of skeptic who says hey i i could potentially be open to that approach to god but i'm pretty sure it's not what i think right you know like that's the question of how do i how do i sort of interact with those ideas
1: so a i really appreciate hearing what you just said that elements of what i've said about my mystical conception and that others have said resonate with you um what's Important for me to say is like I do mean what I've said in the past where I've said I have God days and I have not god days I, th- I think i I said that in our conversation with Eliana light um it's actually not clear to me that my conception of all of us and all matter being one is a theology primarily I do think it and it does play like an integral fundamental role in my life and in my activism and in so many things but Is it a theology for me to say that I believe all human beings and all creatures and all matter are one? Well, on one level, it's a theology because, like, in a world where everybody has to have a theology, if God is like, then you have, then you're saying that the thing that is one, that everything that is one is God. I could just as easily say it's much more important for me to say that everything is one or that you and I and everything around us are one than to say that you and I are God. It's actually, I'm like neutral about whether I am God. I'm not neutral around the conception that all of us are interconnected and part of one cosmic, like the word cosmic sends warning bells to people, but like one cosmic whole for lack of a better term.
0: Yeah. And I want to explore that because one thing before we do, I just want to clarify, I think that the yearning that I'm describing, the the place that I feel like my what I said was my kind of most likely scenario, right, that we're sort of post-God is um, not fully satisfying, is that it doesn't fully um, account for or honor the kind of spiritual experience that people like you, Art Green, Rami Shapiro, our previous guest, you know, people who talk about this kind of uh, more mystical God have experienced and think is valuable. So I I think that that's the piece that I kind of want to grapple with some more and, and think about. One thing that I think really flows from what you just said is that I'm also struggling with the word God. And I know that's kind of where we sort of started uh, with Eliana Light. And the reason why I, I bring this up is a, another thing that I mentioned, I think on a few of the other podcasts, but I really want to Bring this forward as a Jewish traditional thing to do, which is that moment at Sinai where God says to Moses, I was known to your ancestors as El Shaddai, the God of the mountains, and I didn't tell them my actual name, Yidhei Vavhei. And the, the reason why I think that's important is because essentially what was possible after that point was for everybody to say, hey, look, our God is named Yireh Vave. That's that's our God, but when we read these other texts, or we hear these poems or oral stories that talk about El Shaddai, we can recognize that it's talking about the same concept. And what I'm thinking about is again sort of where I started—that I want to honor and retain and not just lop off all of this Jewish cultural history and cultural productivity that has the word God in it. I I think that that is what a lot of people do. And And it seems wrong to me because, not ethically wrong, it seems just not a good idea to me because there's so much good stuff in there. There's also a lot of bad stuff in there. Let's get rid of the bad stuff. But the good stuff, just because it has the word God associated with it or because it's even framed as God commanded this, isn't in my view a reason to just get rid of it it's a reason to say hey now we have another word for this is it the oneness is it something else i think we should do that work of invention of creation of that word because i think for too many of us including me the word god is in the way and you know it's not it's not some tradition to have the word god it's an english word which i think has germanic origins that was a translation of a bunch of words from the the bible so there's no there's no reason that we should be in any way attached to the word in english god if we started from this point forward to talk about a different concept a different word but nevertheless say that this concept was known to our ancestors as Johevade, or was known to our ancestors as a bunch of different names, but now we all know it as this thing. I think that we could sort of move forward helpfully with that.
1: You really are channeling Art Green here in an interesting sense, much as I'm the one whose like theology more resembles his because you i mean he said beautifully that he feels no allegiance to the word god um I mean that was. The quote we used in advertising the episode was that he doesn't he doesn't feel any allegiance to the word God. He feels an allegiance to the concept Yudhe Vavhe, which for art green is best translated as was is will be, one word, you know, past tense, present tense, future tense. Um, something that is eternal. And that conception of God really, really speaks to me for sure. Um but it, it called me to another piece of what Art Green said as I was reflecting on his episode and listening to you, which relates to what you said earlier about prayer, because he also, I think, basically conceded that prayer probably won't work in the way that it has for a long time, and that this whole attempt at at creating or using God language and trying to map new meaning... like. It may need to be a bigger than a revision effort. It may need to be something broader. And I think he cited, you know, for him it'd be okay if people meditated for thirty minutes and maybe said Shema Yisrael, um, that prayer and that like maybe that suffices for the future. And I do think that there's some some level where what you're saying about how we need to take on this project, like we need to we need to do the the remapping. We need to say, okay, let's break down what God has stood for what has it meant, and which are the pieces that we do want to keep, and and not try to just edit. This isn't a track changes effort in Microsoft Word. Like This is a tabula rasa, clean slate kind of moment. I think that often in the prophets, God is invoked to tell fellow human beings, usually fellow Israelites in the Bible, but I'm fine with making it fellow human beings now, um, it's invoked to say, you are not living up to this thing do better god is a utility i know that's a crass word god i'm using it on purpose like god is a utility that is invoked by whether it's isaiah or amos or whatever to say yo israelite society you're not living up to your obligations they would say you're not living up to what god commands you but ultimately you're not feeding the hungry you're not clothing the naked you're not housing the homeless. God is upset with you about that. Now do better. If God continues to play that role in people's lives, Baruch Hashem, bless, bless God. If God is not, and for many people, God isn't, and I do think we are actually losing out on a sense of passionate obligation to better our world, then we need to say, okay, we're going to rewire this and maintain the ideas of clothing the naked and housing the homeless and feeding the hungry like that's that's the real thing here that's what whether it's the the Haftor reading on Yom Kippur that we spoke about which is all about you know meeting those core societal obligations we need to, we need to make that the core and it may be that we have to take it out of a synagogue that we need to not use uh baruch ata or Melech olam or adonai or whatever it might be But I I just want to amplify what you said about like that process has to start or maybe it has started. It has to continue.
0: Well, I think that's a great way to sort of bring us toward our conclusion here. And it's interesting because um, I've been thinking a lot as we've been doing this series and thinking about wrapping up this series of this traditional recital that you make at the end of studying a tractate of Talmud where you say, which means in Aramaic, we will return to you. Meaning, you know, if you finish this Tractate of Talmud, but but we're not finished, we're coming back to this. And that's really where I am. I mean, almost more than most of the units that we talk about on this show. The problem, I think, is that in the subject of God, the experts are putting out only two or three major ideas. And I wish that we were putting out, that folks were putting out all kinds of ideas about God, about not God, about middle positions between those two and about their implications, because I think that if there were more and more put out there, more and more of us would find a place to grasp onto and to say, yeah, that actually does feel like the thing that I've been thinking in the back of my mind or or looking for. Like I, I said at the beginning, I think that it would be a serious mistake to discard the cultural storehouse that Judaism has built up of important concepts, important values, important practices that have been put in God language and often in the language of a personal God that many, many, many folks don't believe in today. And yet, just to translate that into some of the concepts that that are around today, I think either we still haven't resolved, but why with that other concept of God should we keep doing these things? That, that bears some deep thought. And or we haven't yet articulated a concept of God or a concept of post-God or alternative to God or God adjacent or whatever we might say that is able to make use of that cultural storehouse without feeling like it's an anachronism.
1: I wish I could cite exactly what it was in in your most recent comment that made me think in this direction but I'm being brought towards Rachel Adler's conversation and hopefully in order to provide a, a, like a coda to this unit because what Rachel Adler's conversation opened me up to was all sorts of things but she she didn't quite say this directly in words but how we conceive of God She implied this all over the place. How we conceive of God has ramifications for how we conceive of each other as human beings and how we conceive of our world. I'm actually going to say that again. How we conceive of God has ramifications for how we conceive of one another and how we conceive of our world. I say that because, A, with her conversation, we saw that God is not only theological or philosophical. God has political ramifications too. When God is only conceived of as a man, as a father, as a king for generations and generations and generations, we should not be surprised when our Jewish communities reflect dynamics where fathers and men are superior to those who are not fathers and not men. So that's, that's, piece one, and I really want to hammer that home because I think we haven't done a whole lot of the of the intertwining of God stuff and political stuff, and we have this societal th- idea where we think they're separate. We think, oh, God lives in this box over on the side and politics is over here. No. How we conceive of God um, and what pronouns we use, if we're looking back um, on that theme throughout this unit, has ramifications. I want to look back on a sermon I gave recently on Yom Kippur because it I think will tie some of this together. But um I we were using the Gates of Repentance High Holiday Prayer Book. That's the the prayer book that the community I was I was with uses. And it was the Reform High Holiday Book for 40 years. It was published in 1977. And All over the prayer book, it's father and king, there's really no female pronouns for God, and the masculine influence is apparent all over the place. And I turned to the acknowledgement section and talked about how there were only five women out of 155 names thanked for creating this prayer book. I bring it up only to demonstrate how our theologies affect our dynamics of conversation and our dynamics of politics, and vice versa. And so whatever our process is, or is going to be, whereby we remap God to better fit Jewish communities, or remap some some new word that won't be God to better fit Jewish communities and our world, it should be, and I think will be, of necessity intertwined with all of our past conversations about how we rework the political dynamics of Jewish life and beyond.
0: Yeah, and and for me, I think I, I've been mulling over the idea of all of the metaphors that we have used to talk about God throughout the past that Rachel Adler really focused our attention on. And I think I probably have talked about this before, but I'm a big proponent, a big uh, convert to the thinking of George Lakoff on metaphors, you know, who talks a lot about our political metaphors as flowing from, it's interesting, he talks about them flowing from the understandings that we have, in some ways about gender roles. Uh, many f- people have a a worldview that focuses on the strict father type family, and others have a worldview that focuses on what he calls the nurturant parent type family. And one could imagine that which views of God one is is attracted to flow out of the views of, of the family that one holds. And he talks about very much that the metaphors through which we see the world also flow from those. And I don't feel like I quite yet know where this all goes, but I've definitely been thinking about that in terms of the idea of God itself being a metaphor. And the question is, what is God a metaphor for? And in a way, I think that if we could discover, if we could develop the it that God is a metaphor for, and of course, you can't, you would just have to find another metaphor, but that we would be able to find a metaphor that's even more descriptive of what we're trying to describe than God has been for the last X thousand years, then I think we might have gotten quite a lot closer to, to what we're looking for.
1: Yeah, and we hope that all of you out there will will send us your thoughts on whether it's metaphors for God or where we should be taking this whole process of reworking the role that God does and doesn't play in Judaism moving forward. So be in touch with us. That's how we always like to close out our episodes. And uh, there's a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at, at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. I am going to remind you, uh, just like Dan mentioned at the top of the episode, that we have this survey going on. We really want to go as far as we can in, in overextending and over-inviting all of you to participate. We really want you, not the listener next to you, not the listener in the next state from you, you to go to judaismunbound.com slash survey and let us know how Judaism Unbound has been for you thus far and what you'd like to see from us in the future. We're taking on this process seriously, and we really want to hear from as many of you as possible. So please do that. The other last request that I would make is that we're always grateful for any donation that you can make. And there are a few ways for you to do that. Monthly recurring gift or one-time donation, Dan mentioned, also at the top. And those are all available at JudaismUnbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.